Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. This is episode 34, 8mm from 1999. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And this is directed by Joel Schumacher, fresh off his disastrous Batman and Robin. (laughs) The first of two Schumacher movies, at least to this point. He will return, I think, in 2011-ish with Trespass. So... First, but not the last of Schumacher. I think it is sort of worth noting, especially considering the next movie we're going to do looks at Cage at what could have been with Cage and Superman, that we have this like sort of hotbed right here between Schumacher coming off Batman and Robin, Cage almost being Superman, and it's like the world's kind of united, but not quite. Is there anything worth talking about there? Well, I mean, it's definitely worth talking about at least the drastic directorial shift in Schumacher from the style in Batman and Robin and Batman Forever to this film, 8mm. You know, I think I was telling you, if he directed Batman the way he did this, he would have given Christopher Nolan a run for his money, you know? It definitely would have been darker than Burton by far. And there's definitely some weird sort of connection there that, like, yeah, he's coming off Batman, Cage was going to be Superman, and here they are together making this, like, gritty sort of detective story. Your mild-mannered Batman without any money or gadgets in this, right? (laughs) He's just a detective in a dark world solving a horrible mystery. The movie's written by the guy who wrote Seven, and it kind of feels like Seven. Like It's, like, almost, like, relentlessly grim. I mean, there's some sort of relief in terms of, like, when Joaquin Phoenix shows up about halfway through the movie, he's a little bit fun. His character's a lot of fun. The movie is about, Cage is a private detective. He's brought in because he's really good at what he does, which is sort of a trend we've seen in movies recently. It's interesting when this film opens up and he's a detective and I'm immediately brought back to Honeymoon in Vegas. You know, it's basically the same job. In the opening, we see him tailing a guy who's having an affair, right? And and that's how we find out what he does for a living. And I'm like, whoa, this is just, it's like that, but taken extremely seriously. <laughs> you know, same job, though. Yeah, so we see him tailing the guy who's having an affair, doing a really good job, and then he gets brought in by these millionaires. And he seems to sort of be a private investigator, kind of, for the rich and famous, like, the first woman that pays him to investigate, she's, like, a senator with some, like, really rich dead husband. She's having Cage investigate her son's marital fidelity. So not only is he good at what he does, but he, I guess he has this reputation of sort of keeping things close to the vest. If you don't want word to get out that you're, being, that you're hiring a private investigator, Cage is sort of your guy. So he gets brought into this other really, ex- really rich, really fancy, really sort of it looks like established family. And this woman's husband had just died, and he had a safe in his office. And in the safe, there was cash and stocks and everything, but there was an 8mm tape that looked like a snuff film. A girl is murdered, beaten and raped and murdered on screen. And so a lot of the movie is trying to figure out whether or not snuff films exist and this is sort of like before the internet and i feel like with the internet you could find whatever you want so this is sort of like a decidedly kind of pre-internet kind of movie but cage goes out to set out that the woman says i just want to know if this girl is still alive where a girl appears to be murdered i'm not sure i understand It begins as a relatively sleazy bit of pornography and rapidly turns quite violent and bloody What you seem to be talking about is called a snuff film. From what I know, snuff films are a kind of urban myth. Sex industry folklore, there's there's no such thing. That's what I explained to Mrs. Christian. This is probably an S&M film of some sort. Simulated rape, simulated violence. It's hard to stomach, but there are ways of doing it. Fake blood, special effects. Would you look at the film and give us your opinion? All I want is to know that this atrocity is false. And so he's given a lot of money, basically like a blank check to do whatever he needs to do, go find out if this girl is alive. Yeah, this was sort of the dial-up era, so not everybody was online going as fast as we are today, (laughs) and things still weren't uploaded, so there was uh, definitely that seedy black market for underground porno, and this movie is sort of exploiting that and bringing, you know, that problem to the forefront, and it's just right right on the cusp of being too late, you know, because like you say, the internet's going to explode, porn's going to go crazy, even crazier from there, and you'll be able to find what you need online. Didn't really pick 
up that Cage worked for sort of politically active, high social standard families. But yeah, I never picked up on that. I sort of just thought he was the best in Pennsylvania. So <laughs> this really rich lady hires him. What's kind of weird about the man that dies, he is like mega important. He was like a Rockefeller, you know? So yeah. when she finds this eight millimeter can of film looks like a snuff film and it's super realistic it's like worse because you know he's an institution this man had a reputation and all this kind of stuff so we're dealing with like almost like i was thinking illuminati level type of power you know where like people in power that can just do anything they want to do and get away with it and like what's kind of worse in the situation is that he's dead so like whatever fallout comes from this he doesn't even have to deal with the consequences. He's just left upon this wife that really, I mean, her life would have been better off if they never even opened that safe. But now that she opened the safe, now that she knows sort of what her husband might have been up to, she's got to get some answers, and Cage is the guy to go do that. Yeah, and that safe is certainly some type of metaphorical Pandora's box that, you know, sure. once you open it and look inside, like, it will forever change you, you know? It, it exposes good men to the evils of the world and turns them corrupt and rotten, and then this is the journey that Cage will go on for the most part. We will see the investigation of this film kind of ruin him. Because he is really just like a good guy. Like he sort of seems kind of like a normal guy. He's got a wife at home. He's got a baby. The baby's name is Cinderella, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Like it's such a, <laughs> I don't know. There's no reason why. I guess, I don't know. It's a really strange flourish too, because the, this entire movie is taken dead seriously. It's gritty depressing important i guess i don't know it's it's like an expose so yeah i was kind of taken off guard i was like is she really cinderella or is that just sort of a pet name because i don't know it wasn't landing for me well they call her cindy but like they say cinderella several times so like the baby's name is cinderella i mean ultimately it makes no difference but it's it's crazy it's just it's a weird touch but he's got a wife he's got this baby his wife she just wants him to be home he goes and finds out about this cheating husband comes back she's like okay now that you're back i just want you to be here cindy wants you to be around and then almost immediately he gets this call from this other house it's like this is like a lot of money we can set ourselves up for life i think we've encountered it in other movies in cage club maybe like almost i guess it's sort of like wild at heart right like when bobby peru is like hey you know you want a lot of money real quick this will set you up never accept a lot of money at least if you're in a movie never accept a lot of money for like what seems like a relatively easy job because bad things are going to happen. Yeah, it's akin to taking a shortcut, right? <laughs> like, you never want to take a shortcut in a movie because it's, you're going to go on a very trying journey. And it's almost the same thing here. Yeah, he sees the opportunity, but he's got to earn this money. You know what? I don't think he realizes exactly what he's in for. He's a detective, but this is different. You know, this isn't like he starts off tracking a missing person. However, the world that he has to go into, he knows absolutely nothing about. You know, like he's going to have to not go undercover, but get involved in the sex trafficking. I don't know, in the porn trafficking. In really shady underground businesses. Yeah. So, I mean, he is kind of money blind at this. And I think that is sort of the reason he accepts the call is because he's got this daughter and Catherine Keener at home as his wife. And the only thing against him as a character is that he smokes and lies about it. (laughs) That's basically as bad as he is. We see him do sort of questionable things as an investigator, but it's because of his discretion. You know, he's being paid not to go to the police. He's being paid to keep certain things to himself or, like you said, close to the vest. He doesn't know what he's in for. He's sort of really out of his depth, right? Which is something that we haven't really necessarily seen a lot from him before in other movies. We get a really clear sense of how far out of his depth he is when he brings the 8mm tape back and he watches it. Like, he's visibly haunted by this tape. Even though at this point he's not sure if it's real or not, he's so far removed from the world where this is, like, not necessarily accepted behavior, but, like, it's clear that he knows nobody that has, like, fetishistic tastes that reach anything this level. He's, like, disgusted and repulsed, and he's, like, biting his knuckles, and he's trying to just, like, stomach his way through it. Like, it's kind of cool and also kind of, like, scary in terms of the character how accepting almost of it or how second nature this kind of content becomes as the movie goes on. He subjects himself to watching a lot of these snuff-like films. By the end, it just it almost seems like it doesn't phase him. He's almost like deadening himself to this content because he just sort of has to. Like you said earlier, 
it's turning him from sort of like a good guy into something darker and more sort of sinister and seedy. Yeah, he starts to desensitize himself with it. I think it's partially by choice where he decides, if I see enough of this stuff, it won't bother me, and I can find out which ones are fakes, which ones are real, and it will help me out on my investigation, and I could just call out the real from the false. It kind of has this surprise effect where, like, it just starts, like, corrupting him. (laughs) You know, like, the more he sees, like, he won't admit it, but it, like, really starts to change him and gets off track. He just starts changing. Even though he's told not to, he does go to the police and he sort of gives a cover story. He looks through their missing persons files and he finds a picture of a girl, the girl in the video. And I thought for a second it might be kind of a misdirection. That, you know, this isn't the girl, and he has this, it's like sort of like a dead end. But no, like, from the first person he finds, like, he finds the right girl, right? Like, it's just this one missing girl, right age, right looks. He's sort of set out on his path. So he finds out that the girl is this girl, Mary Ann Matthews, and he goes to Mrs. Matthews' house. And this is, like, sort of a heartbreaking scene. Like, it's almost, at times in this movie, I questioned why he cared, because he sort of seems to go above and beyond the call of duty. Like, he's starting to get himself into, like, real dark seedy environments and involved in some real sketchy people and i wondered why he was so committed to this job and the only thing i could come up with and maybe you have a better idea is because he has a daughter of his own at home and he goes to talk to mrs matthews about her missing daughter and you can see that like in her bedroom there's like a present for every year that she's been gone and it's just like this woman's like devotion and love for her daughter is so deep and i think he i don't know if he's doing it for the woman that's paying him i don't know if he's doing it for himself I don't know if he's doing it for Mrs. Matthews, but to me, it's just because of Cinderella, I think, that he's, like, putting her life at risk, and he's sort of doing the job to get money for her, but whatever the reason, he sort of goes above and beyond to find this missing girl. It starts off where he's going over the 8mm film, the snuff film, meticulously, frame by frame, taking digital photos of it and enhancing it and printing out pictures and looking for anything he can find. Then he takes the picture to the Hall of Records and we get this like amazing action scene that's like just looking through files, but it's shot almost like an action scene in montage. <laughs> it's, it was really kind of interesting. The whole film is shot pretty much I felt like a horror film uh, up until this point and I felt that really worked well and so the Hall of Records scene had me jarred for a moment but yeah I never sort of questioned if this was the girl or not just because of like how much work was sort of put into this in the Hall of Records like he spends like weeks there presumably looking through pictures and when we get to the mom's house it's about like abusing women you know like it's the girl on film meeting her mother seeing that she's this destroyed woman the wife of the billionaire who made the film like you know she is destroyed over this film he's setting up his own wife and daughter to reap the side effects of what he's about to go through that might end up destroying their life i think it's just like as he goes on he's like women girls like people in general people just get thrown away every day and no one knows and no one cares and I think he just starts getting more and more determined to prove that someone cares to somebody you know about this girl yeah I guess it's like a million missing girls is a statistic but like one missing girl is a tragedy this is a girl that he's going through that hall of records like you were saying and he's like he's rifling through all these different people and sees all these missing people who've sort of been forgotten to time and I guess it's him seeing what he can do as a single person that he's not gonna be able to help all of these people but he can help this one girl and sort of make a difference to her story and to her family and to this other family. And if he can do that, then maybe it's all worth it. And I don't even believe that he's trying to prove much to himself, you know? I mean, he considers himself good at his job, you know? And, like, he wants to do the job he's hired to do. I almost take it a lot on that value that, you know, he's not doing this to be famous, you know? Like you said, like, he's not... He doesn't want attention. He just wants to, like, know the truth. <laughs> it's almost becomes, right. like, this obsession with a why, you know? Why did this happen? Not necessarily why her, but, like, what are the evils of this world that would allow something like this to happen? And who am I to protect my own daughter there's a lot going on and i I still go back to the fact that like he sort of goes a little bit farther than i think his character is necessarily justified to do but between all these women that he's trying to help whether it's his own family or marianne's family or this other family it's just sort of like another one of those like cage characters where he's devoted to the cause and he's going to go all out and so he's at marianne's house and he finds her secret diary hidden in a toilet and it makes mention that she's moving to l.a Cage finds out that she's in love with this guy named Warren. Actually, I think this is a good place to talk about Pennsylvania, where it's all set, because I think him talking to Warren's dad 
is a great example of just sort of that Pennsylvania blue-collar kind of vibe. The movie's set in Pennsylvania, and it's sort of similar, I think, to other kind of like gritty cop stories that have been told recently that I've seen in the last couple of years in Pennsylvania. Stories like Out of the Furnace and God's Pocket and all these different movies. It's depressing because it feels real. Like it feels lived in. Like it feels like these are real people and like communities or families dealing with tragedy. And I think that Cage talking to this guy Warren's dad is a real example of like he's just a guy, he's just working on his truck. Thrillers, these cop stories set in Pennsylvania all have like this bleak, realistic, gritty vibe that I think just works really well and sort of resonates. It, it adds another dimension to these films. I almost got a Gone Baby Gone type vibe from yeah. the character of that dad. And, you know, it's very sort of similar surroundings there and where they are in Pennsylvania. And the rain and the overcast and the gray and, you know, the fall type weather, it, it really helps to give you something visually that it's something that the character has to fight against. You know, it's like even nature is dark like like the secrets of the underground porn ring right like i don't know it helps give this sort of gothic dark feel to the film and adds to the mood it's just another thing the the character has to deal with and and we get a great contrast between like pennsylvania and, and los angeles too you know he he goes to la and it's shot with orange filters and it's bright and sunny and they they really draw that contrast there so that when we go back and forth it really stands out yeah like when they go to california he's going to get there in a little bit it's such a like a change just in terms of music in terms of colors in terms of lighting it's almost weird though right because it's like this whole movie is this like dark underground and when he goes out to california he's thrown even deeper into this world but it is sort of like he's escaping sort of one gritty reality that basically come up for air only to like plunge back down a little bit yeah, he goes to visit Warren in prison and is sort of like, you know, I, we got out to L.A., but I, I left her out there. Now I'm in prison. And <laughs> we should probably mention Warren, played by a young Norman Reedus of Walking Dead fame. Yeah, Daryl Dixon himself. Cage learns that, okay, like, I got to kind of go to L.A. now, you know? Like, he left her there. He's here. Yeah, man. Where's she? I, knew her. I don't know. Dumped that bitch right before I moved to L.A. She shows up knocking at my door like a fucking stalker. I told that bitch she could go to hell. Where'd she go? Hell, maybe. I don't know. I don't know, and I don't give a fuck either. The Warren path is sort of a dead end. Like, Warren didn't have anything to do with it. It's not like Warren killed her or had anything to do with the video. So he's going to head out to L.A., but before he goes out to L.A., He has, like, a really important call or a really important chat with Marianne's mom, and he basically says, like, would you rather choose hope or truth? Like, if I know what happened to your daughter, like, do you want me to tell you, like, if it's not something you want to hear? If you had to make a choice, just if you were forced to choose between imagining her out there somewhere, living a good life, being happy, but you don't know. You never find out. The worst being true. Her being gone. But you know. You finally know what's happened. What would I choose? I would choose to know. I need to know. Like, that's kind of, like, the big question of the movie, right? Like, do you want to live in this sort of idealized world, or are you ready to accept the truth, no matter how much that's going to shake you to your core? Yeah, he sort of has a good feeling that this girl is dead. Uh, He's not about to tell the mom because he doesn't know for sure, but I almost feel like he's asking himself the same question at this point, you know? Like, is he ready to continue and go on now that he's met the mother and seen her? Like, she's like, every time the phone rings, I think it's her, you know, every time, like, without fail. Like, she still believes, like, maybe she's out there alive. And Cage, you know, he pretty much knows that she's dead and he just needs to confirm it. And so I get the 
sense that like he's ready to soldier on. So uh, yeah, he's asking that out loud at this point. You know, I think he he needs to hear it just as much as she needed to hear it too. She never really thought any other thing except that she's still alive. Yeah. So he goes out to Los Angeles. It's the second movie in a row. It's Welcome to Hollywood. Like the first thing we <laughs> see is that Hollywood sign. Not two movies in a row with Cage, but the second time in a row we're out to Hollywood. And like we were saying earlier, it's just like this massive shift, right? There's like cacophonous sounds and new colors, and like it's a completely different, like he's entering a new world. The East Coast is kind of like his safety net. Like there's bad stuff in the East, but it's sort of like real. Like out West, everything is like amplified, and everything is heightened and stylized. Even the characters that he meets out there, they're all sort of cartoonish and outlandish and crazier than the ones he on the East Coast. Yeah, he is entering La La Land. <laughs> you know, that is the side of L.A. that we're going to see. You know, the desperate, seedy, icky part. <laughs> like, you almost hear the sort of uh, cautionary tale where people get off of a bus and a guy comes and picks them up and the next thing you know, they're in like eight pornos, right? Yeah. That is the side of town that he's in- investigating. It's almost like the next door to hell you know if you want to sort of use that parallel there's different levels of hell and like you know he's in the next level everything is pumped up a bit and you know much more in your face and the neon and the brightness and it's such a strong contrast from east and west coast it's a whole other dimension and we're trying to acclimate to all the new noise and all the new sounds and i think it's giving a good impression of what he's going through as well would this be like the second level of hell like the first level (laughs) of hell was investigating mary Anne's home, and this, I guess, is the second level? Is that how we're going to say the metaphor? Are we we cool with that? This is the second level of hell? (laughs) I guess I'm cool with that. Before, he was just sort of at the gate, and now he's, like, inside. Okay, so it's like the first level. Okay. (laughs) He was sort of, like, kicking the waters, and now he's actually, he's, like, diving in headfirst. Yeah. And so it's now that he's in this first level of hell that he meets his guide or his companion, right? He goes to a sex shop. I guess this is why I'm not a detective, but it seems like such a tall order to just go out to a new city and just be like, all right, like, find out what happened to this girl you don't know. And so he goes to, like, a sex shop and meets up with Joaquin Phoenix. You can immediately tell that he's Joaquin Phoenix, I guess, but, like, he's dressed in a way that I've never seen him dressed before. And they have almost an entire conversation, and maybe it's because of the content of that conversation, but I didn't recognize him at first. Like, he's got blue spiked hair, pierced ears. He's sort of, like, punky, counterculture. I don't know how you want to describe him, but, like, it was also mostly because of what they're talking about. Yeah, guess so. Sir, could I interest you in a battery-operated vagina? Well, it's tempting, but no thanks. Okay. I'd hate to see you caught in one of those everyday situations that calls for a battery-operated vagina, and you just don't have one, you know what I mean? I'll risk it. Uh, your total is seventy-four fifty-eight, please. And sir, I'd like to thank you for shopping at Adult Bookstore and have yourself a fabulous day. What are you reading? Oh. Catch your title. What are you really reading? Hard to believe that book's got any parts worth highlighting. Capote. Yeah. Well, you know how it is. Yeah. Wouldn't want to embarrass yourself in front of your fellow perverts. That's right. I might get jumped out of the pornographer's union. Where would I be then? Yeah, uh, he kind of reminded me of a friend I had in high school just by looks alone, like with the blue hair and, and the pierced ears and things like that. Yeah, he's he's like an L.A. punk, you know? I think he's just like a street kid or something like that, and he's definitely, like, got this character down, though, you know, like, comes across so natural. I mean, he's just such a great actor and it, it's so cool to see him and Cage, like, sharing a screen and, and they're gonna team up for a while here. Like, he becomes, like you said, like, his guide into this world of the underground. It's almost like a reverse mentor relation, you know, like, Cage is the older guy, but the younger kid is showing him the ropes. Joaquin Phoenix, already one of the coolest names in Hollywood, is playing an even cooler name. His character name is Max Cal. California. And I love that. You know, we have Cameron Poe from Con Air. We have Caster Troy, Sean Archer, all these different names, Sailor Ripley. In this movie, Cage is just Tom Wells, bland, daughter named Cinderella, real cool. But Tom Wells, eh. But at least we have Max California, his guide through the underworld of Los Angeles. Yeah, later we get a cool name with Dino Velvet, but we'll get there when we get there. But cool names abound in this movie. Cage meets up with Joaquin, and Joaquin is like this 
Like, he's working in the sex shop, but he wants more out of life. Like, he's reading some smut book, but he's highlighting things, and Cage finds out that he's actually reading Truman Capote. That sort of gives him validation, right? He, he's more than just, like, a, a minimum wage working at, like, a dirty sex shop. That he's somebody who, like, has aspirations and sort of has the brains to be able to navigate him through the world. Yeah, I think it's what compels Cage to sort of, you know, ask for his this guy's help. Yeah, he looks like, you know, your run-of-the-mill pervert, <laughs> like he says, but he's actually reading In Cold Blood and highlighting it and, you know, throwing around big words and being funny. And yeah, All right, he's, like, personable, and him and Cage are sort of hitting it off. And I don't know, he's just not your everyday, ordinary guy behind the counter like there's just something else to him and, and that was kind of like a nice thing you know if the whole looks can be deceiving aspect of it too like you shouldn't really just judge a book by its cover and you know people are gonna later on sort of judge cage by his cover and be wrong about it and yeah. vice versa like a lot of that kind of comes out in this you know like the billionaire guy it's like oh he looked like this holy upstanding citizen but we found a snuff film in his safe when he died you know can't judge a book by its cover Cage and Joaquin team up to go sort of find out who made the movie, where the movie came from, or try to find people who can help them answer that question. Cage is like watching and rewatching and rewatching and sort of diving into this level of obsession about this film finds out that there's like a third guy like this world is kind of expanding there's not just two guys like it's not just a couple of people it seems like more of like an organization mm. like in snake eyes you learn that it takes five people to make a conspiracy <laughs> in this movie we learn that like it takes three people to make a bdsm movie or a snuff film i was just gonna say practically the exact same <laughs> this is more of his sort of frame-by-frame frame analysis, and what I wrote down was computer photo enhancement, and, and then he says, I've used computer photo enhancement <laughs> to find out stuff about this thing, and I think he finds out, um, like, the lab that film was made at, so he can track the lab down. Or Yeah, him and Joaquin, though, they just pretty much go around, like you said, like, this is all, like, very much a needle in a haystack they're looking for. First, he's just looking for a girl, and, and now he's, they're just sort of looking for random dealers that sell snuff films to tell yeah. which, which ones are real and which ones are fake, and if they can find who's in the same ones, if anyone, and off they go into, like, a very disturbing sequence of trying to buy snuff films. Yeah, I do, but before we get there, I want to go back real quick to the computers. Past guest Christian Larson has always pointed out when he's watching his Cage Club movies how much he loves 90s computers, how outdated they are. But in this movie, I wrote down, because it's so crazy, the way that he finds out that there's a third man is he goes to this lab. Oh, yes. And they're like, it took us 137 billable man hours to rasterize this picture. And all it does is, like, make it slightly less blurry. So you're like, oh, that is a guy. Okay. Like, basically, today, the TV equivalent of enhance, 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 137 hours to make a picture a little less blurry. I'm telling you, man, this was the age of dial-up. <laughs> like, wherever he went to get that done didn't have cable. That's just, again, like, you know, a sign of the times, right? Like, we are on the cusp of this, like, online explosion, and we get to see the world, like, the day before that happens, like, literally. And so you're right, like, they do enter, like, basically, like, a back alley where just people selling snuff films or people selling underground, like, VHS porno films. Yeah. One guy's got snuff films. But when they're walking in, Joaquin look, basically I don't warns Cage. You may like porn as much as the next guy, but you don't look like your average sleaze. More like your average fucking cop. So when you walk around asking people about fucking illegal stuff, it has a certain patina to it. Uh, patina? Yes, it's a Truman Capote word. Hello. If someone ever saw or sold a snuff film, they shouldn't give a damn what I ask about it. If they have, they got a right to be nervous. Whoever acts insulted, you keep knocking on their door. Look, Pops, it's not too late to change your mind about all this. I'm going to tell you, there's things that you're going to see that, that you can't unsee. They get in your head and they stay there. How do you know what I've seen? Okay, fine. But everybody's got their limit. Look, I've been here six fucking years trying to get my music together. So I start clerking part-time where I work, you know, to make ends meet. And boom, a couple years go by and here I am. I'm just saying, before you know it, you're in it. Deep in it. Don't worry about me. But thank you. Well, you're welcome. Pops, you dance with the devil. The devil don't change. The devil changes you. Some of your lyrics? That's cute. Joaquin can see it in 
cage that like you're still soft you know like you <laughs> think you know what goes on but like i've been in la it chewed me up it tried to spit me out but i'm hanging on by a threat in order to survive i have to deal with total scumbags and every day you know like if you think about it like mr california isn't exactly like mayor of the city or anything like <laughs> you know his friends like they conspire in these like underground comic con for porno tapes you know it's like <laughs> disgusting like i don't know it just reminded me like i used to go to like hotels for comic book conventions where it's just books as far as the eye can see on these fold-out tables and it's like this is just like disgusting horrible porno <laughs> as far as the eye can see like on these tables with just these leches going through it just ugh. the ick factor is just like way beyond what i can handle right now you said the perfect thing because there is a box that says way beyond. <laughs> that's all, yeah, that's that's right. all that's written on there. It just says way beyond. And what's in there is what's what they call extreme bondage. And Cage goes, he's like, hey, anything harder? And the guy's like, no, like, get out of here. Like, <laughs> this is enough. Just like, buy this and get on with it. Like, buy five, get one free. And they <laughs> buy these movies. They go back to Max California's apartment and they're watching them. And it's like, it's a visual representation of their transformation because Cage is like less turned off from this and Joaquin Phoenix is having this really tough time watching it and he even walks away and Cage is like hey 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 come back here like it's fake like look that's the same girl like the same girl just got killed in two movies in a row like it's not real and Joaquin's like okay like it's just a movie and like he's totally okay with it but it's amazing that you know 45 minutes into this movie Cage is basically this hardened doesn't believe what he sees already sort of numb to the world and this guy who sort of was, like, his guide, his protector, he's, like, he's already, like, darker than that other guy. They think the one tape is a real snuff film, and then they watch the the next one, and they're like, oh, it's the same girl. Like, it, you know, like, it's an actress. Like, they're fake. But when they think it's real, they're both pretty disturbed by it. But Cage less so, you're right. Like, he is gung-ho. He's like, we got to look at every tape. We got to analyze everything. And, and Joaquin Phoenix is like, man, like, like I don't know. This is like, you know, this is obsession, <laughs> you know? Like, you're obsessed. Like, that's what I'm thinking. He's thinking is like, this dude is like out there, bro. Like, you know, can't judge him by his cover. He seemed like a normal dude, but like, he's got problems. Has he showed Joaquin the actual 8mm film at this point? But I'm, Cage, not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure knows what real looks like so it's very strange how yeah his character is just like really hard at this point like maybe because he he knows what real looks like this stuff like he he's just assuming it's all fake it's really funny now how like the teacher has surpassed the student in terms of what kind of porno he's able tonight? to stomach no i am not you don't exactly get turned off either devil's changing you already they sort of run into another dead end here. I guess it's sort of like time-lapse, like you were saying that he's going through the Hall of Records probably for weeks looking for this picture. I'd imagine he's just sort of like wandering around L.A., kind of going to different places. He eventually goes to like this homeless shelter and a nun recognizes her. Yeah, he gets her personal effects because he tells the nun, like, oh, I'm a friend of the family or something. He lies He lies to the nun. And <laughs> he's going through her stuff, and a poem falls out. And on the back of the poem is, like, a phone number. And right. it's, oh, like, celebrity a film. office for Celebrity Films, which is, like, an independent porno company. Like, what's kind of visually cool is that he's walking into the belly of the beast, the lair of the devil, whatever. I mean, Gandolfini, we'll come to learn, is one of the main sort of henchmen behind this master plan. But he has to, like, walk down this, like, through this hallway in this, like, dilapidated building, past all these amateur, washed-up, disgusting girls, and he just sort of has to walk through all that to, like, meet one of the devils himself. Like, it's kind of cool imagery that if he's... If Los Angeles is sort of the first ring of hell... He's sort of beginning to enter the second ring of hell here. Yeah, and, and the, I loved how the office was on the second floor of, like, a dry cleaning business, too, because you get, like, that hot steam blowing everywhere, and it feels, like, much more like, yeah, this is a demon's lair here. Like, you know, he, he's walking into a monster's house. When he meets Eddie, he, like, confronts him, like, almost right away, where he's like, you know this woman? And Eddie, he's saying nothing, but he's showing me everything, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> he obviously knows this girl. I realize right now, like, he's one of the conspirers. 
terrors. Like, he's definitely involved in this murder. And he's like, nah, no, no, get out of here, you know? I'm trying to run a business. And, and Cage is like, all right, I got to follow this guy. And he bugs Gandolfini's phone, and he rents a space across the street where he can just spy on his office. It seems like almost like another dead end. Like, he knows and we know that he's got something to do with it, but he's not tipping his hand. And then he calls Gandolfini. He's like... I know what you did six years ago. I know you killed that girl. And then just hangs up. And I'm like, whoa. I know all about it. Yeah, you know all about what? About that girl. Six years ago. I know what you did to her. Who is this? You murdered her. You and your friends. I know what the fuck you're talking about. You killed her on film. And now you're fucked. You're all fucked putting all the cards on the table yeah and you see Gandolfini kind of like freak out and then he calls Dino Velvet he calls Peter Stormar who is honestly like one of my favorite character actor movie villains like he's so great in everything and he's so good in this I love the scene where he's spying on Gandolfini and you know he's become a voyeur he's a peeping Tom in a sense you know and he's watching live porno now because Gandolfini gets to like try out the actresses and everything <laughs> like that but then yeah he totally pulls like I know what you did last summer and he's just doing it just to see what it does like what are the effect like what's this gonna do is he just gonna be like whatever but no Gandolfini like freaks out it has the desired effect and he calls Dino Velvet who it, they call the Jim Jarmusch of S&M which which I mean what, what a compliment I guess I mean Jim Jarmusch is no joke top three favorite directors of mine so <laughs> I'm looking forward to meeting this man and not disappointed <laughs> when I find out who's playing him like you said like I love this guy I mean my favorite part of Armageddon Fargo and so Dino Velvet lives in New York City so they've got to go back to the East Coast he's sort of found the path through Los Angeles but now to get the ultimate answers they have to fly back to the East Coast and Joaquin Phoenix is like hey like I'm coming along too right you're not gonna be able to do this without me especially looking like that you can't dress that way and like meet Dino Velvet you need me to get this job done yeah it's pretty interesting how we go back to the East Coast and we're in New York City now which is you know okay we're in we're in another level I suppose but it's just funny how they are crisscrossing America like this and, and like it's taking place in these two major cities and I love how how Max gets to tag along, you know? I mean, I'm just so glad that they brought... I mean, it seems a little... I'm sure Cage would have managed because it doesn't... Max doesn't really do that much we'll get to it but yeah it's, it's i'm definitely glad that he's in the movie when we get back to new york the only thing that they really know about dino velvet's operation is that the guy in the mask the guy that dino velvet uses in pretty much all of his films or all of the big ones anyway he calls himself machine he's basically like the gimp from pulp fiction but like just in like a leather vest he's sort of like if the gimp and Rob Halford from Judas Priest had a baby, that is machine. They go to New York, they go to Dino Velvet's office, and they ram on the door. They basically are told to piss off. They said, well, hey, like we're here to give him a lot of money. Like If he doesn't want it, like we'll just take off. And they get in and they meet really like the ultimate devil in Dino Velvet. Yeah, they spend like a lot of time collecting Dino Velvet tapes first, and, and Cage notices the tattoo on the bondage guy, and he's like, oh, that's, that's the same guy, because no one in the world has the same tattoo as another guy and <laughs> in the same place involved in this bondage land. No, but I'll give the movie that. There's a lot of things in this movie where it's like, in the Hall of Records, he just finds Mary Ann, he just finds Gandolfini, he's like, he's close to find, like, it just happens to be, I mean, the movie is already kind of long, I mean, it's two hours this is a solid two-hour movie i know that we can't have too many false ends like you know dead ends false leads whatever but like it, it is sort of like coincidental that like he's just like oh yeah like no that's the guy like he, he's the only guy in the world with the star on his hand like that's it like it's kind of weird but like it's also like all right let's just let's just keep the story moving forward yeah, I almost feel at times where the movie is like, okay, like enough movie time has gone by where we can reveal and get on to the next thing, <laughs> as opposed to it hardcore earning it. You know what I'm saying? Like at points, it just sort of continues on because <laughs> we got to keep going. But one thing they do find out is Cage checks in with the widow with this point, and she finds out that a million dollars has been like paid out at some point, and he deduces that that money must have gone to pay for the snuff film the money is sort of important i mean it's it's this world of corruption and no morals and greed it's really the money and just sort of this trail of money and this promise of money that gets him in the door to meet dino velvet 
So it, it's important that he brought up the money because, like, the money is, like, what drives everything. And he goes in basically just as, you know, a guy off the street, like a high roller, and he wants to commission an original Dino Velvet. He's like, I want one white girl, one black girl. He's like, but I got stipulations. Yeah, he's like, number one, it's got to be machine, and number two, I want to be there. You know, I want to see the, I want to see you do your thing. They finally agree, like, the price goes up because the devil loves his money but he, they finally agreed to like the that they're gonna make this film cage is like all right max california joaquin phoenix you've been helpful up to this point but like shit's about to hit the fan like it's gonna get real serious real fast like you might want to get out of here and he's just like no like i'm in it for the long haul i think it's kind of like at this point where you like you kind of know sort of something bad is going to happen to joaquin phoenix but you, you sort of don't want to believe like he's a good guy sort of trapped in this world of evil and just sort of corruption he's like a sympathetic character and just heartbreaking that he he just wants to help but like he and cage both are in over their heads yeah i think at this point after they've met the devil you know for all intent and purpose like that's who dino is gonna sort of turn out to be at this point you're right i don't i don't think max even knows how much trouble he's in i mean we sort of see when cage is in la he's kind of being followed people like are kind of noticing what he's doing you know like that is the impression that i get i don't know now i'm really starting to worry for max too so when cage is like your time is over you gotta go you gotta get out of here i was like yeah i hope he does go because like <laughs> as cool as it was to see him chilling in new york like i want this guy to survive i want him to go back and like start a band in la and get out of that <laughs> you know porn store or whatever and what's crazy about this scene takes place in a diner outside there's a car on fire did you know there really yeah no. there's just a car on fire and like a fire engine it was just very distracting and and i know it was supposed to be symbolic but i just couldn't figure it out while i was watching the movie <laughs> it just seemed like oh look how crazy and messed up new york can be <laughs> given moment you know <laughs> like or it's just more hellish imagery for what's about to happen i would imagine it's more hellish imagery i mean it's just i did i don't know how i didn't see that before Joaquin Phoenix leaves, he gives Cage like a little bit of advice. He's like, there's three rules. He's like, there's always a victim. Number two, don't be that victim. And number three, I forget what the third one is. <laughs> Cage is like, all right, like, duly noted. All right, go back to California, Max California. He goes to where he and Dino agreed to, like, go meet. And he shows up, and it's just Dino and the machine. Uh-oh, like, things are about to get real dark real fast because there's no girls there there's no videographer there's nothing else it's just trouble and more trouble yeah he walks into a warehouse that's entirely red you know talk about <laughs> hell machine is just done putting on his bondage mask and he's like sitting on a bed looking like the scariest thing i've ever seen like he, i just got finished watching about six friday the 13th movies and this guy trumps jason any day of the week like yeah. he is menacing and to top it off dino is shooting a crossbow at a target doing crossbow target practice you know and he's like welcome you know the girls will be here any minute just relax and i'm like just relax i can't relax and i'm only watching this a car shows up out gets not the girls but the lawyer the lawyer from the dead billionaire's wife what's kind of weird about this movie is that we're 75 minutes into the two-hour movie and the movie so far has been it's kind of like a slow-paced thriller right like there's not mm -hmm. a lot happening He's going to meet people he's sort of following. He's doing some detective work. But it's honestly kind of slow up to this point. And then these next, like, five or ten minutes, it ramps everything up to 11. Like, everything just gets crazy out of nowhere. Like, there's huge twists. There's huge action. So many people die. You're kind of lulled into this, like, slow rhythm of this movie. And then it just, like, punches you in the face. Like, things are not what you seem. Things are not what Cage thought they were. It is a slow burn sort of investigative <laughs> film kind of the only thing saving it is like the acting for me you know Joaquin Phoenix is great in this I love watching him play off Cage you know I'm liking Cage in this you know he's he's not really going anywhere nuts he's playing it pretty safe in this film but it's working this is feeling like a climax now like this is the third act this is the end of the film almost like things feel like they're coming to a close for me because revelation upon revelation like the lawyer commissioned the movie these are the guys that are all in on it. Cage has found, he's right at this, we, we've got a fourth person here. We're one away from a full-on, I guess Cage is the fifth person. You know, he know. has made himself the fifth person in this conspiracy. I guess, I guess the fifth person would be the dead billionaire. There you go. So we've, <laughs> we've pinpointed it. For me, I'm like, oh man, this movie's about to end. But no, there's like a lot of 
time left. <laughs> and this is like, like really the second Cage movie in a row, this and Snake Eyes, where they're basically like, hey, like we just got you because like we heard you were good. Yes. Like <laughs> We thought you were naive. Like We didn't think you were this good. Like <laughs> Stop underestimating Cage. <laughs> exactly. Like I wrote that down. It's like line for line, the same thing Gary Sinise <laughs> said, where he's like, we hired you because we didn't think you'd be able to figure it out, but you've gotten further than we ever would have expected. They chain Cage to a table, and they beat him up. They start like kicking the shit out of him, and they pull his wallet out. And they take out the picture of his wife and his daughter. They bring in Joaquin Phoenix. And, like, it's like, oh, no. Like, everybody that he knows and loves and cares about is now, like, an immediate, like, mortal danger because he just went a little bit too crazy and got in a little bit too far over his head. Talk about, like, hellish imagery again. Like, Velvet puts the picture of his wife and kid in his mouth. And it's like that old painting of the devil eating people and stuff. I was just like, holy crap, that is amazing. And he's got the goatee. He's just full-on Satan. Joaquin is now duct-taped across the mouth and put up against the target for the crossbow practice. And they're like, go get the 8mm film or we're going to murder this guy. The lawyer and him go out like he's like, I got it in my car. And so they go for a walk. This is a lot of movies where Cage is sort of, and I guess it's sort of the narrative structure, but it seems like Cage, he's trying to process a lot of information really quickly. He just like doesn't understand what's going on. They couldn't find you one, so you paid them to make you one, right? Isn't that what happened? The girl was alive, so you paid to have her murdered? How much did Christian pay you for your conscience? A million? I've been well compensated. But you, I bought cheap. Just because Mrs. Christian praised your discretion, you sat on evidence of murder, you dragged your friend into it, your family, into some old graveyard to dig up a dead girl with no name that nobody cares about or even remembers. Marianne Matthews. That was her name. Her mother remembers her. Oh, I'm bored with this. It's like a gut punch. Like, it's the wind was taken out of our sails. He finds out once and for all that Mary was killed, that the film was actually, that it wasn't just a fake bondage film. It actually was a snuff film. And he asked the lawyer, he's like, did you watch it? Why did he want a film? What snuff film did you watch it with him? This is not helping your friend. Now get the film and let's go. Did you get him off, huh, Mr. Christian? Watching them? cut her up like that? Did he jerk off to it? You sit there, hold his cock, give him the hand job while, while Marianne Matthews was dying? What the hell are you trying to do? I'm trying to understand! What the fuck did he want with a snuff film? You're asking me why? Yes, why? Why? Why did he want a film of a little girl being butchered? Because he could. He did it because he could. What other reason were you looking for? You know, I don't think Cage exactly got the answer that he was looking for. That is just, like, so evil, right? Like, he did it because he could, you know? He was rich. He had everything, you know, it's just that power. When you're that powerful, you know, I would sit somewhere on, like, a private island trying to imagine, you know, how could I afford to clean up space junk? And this billionaire is like, I want a snuff film. What kind of mind? It's just, yeah, it's disturbing. They go back in, they get the tape, they they bring it back in, like, everything, like, everything about this just, like, feels, we're gonna get to that a little bit later about just, like, people doing things just because they can. It's just, like, icky. Like, we knew that we were entering a dark world, but we're entering a dark world where people do things because they have the money to. Like, Cage, I think he, he gets the answer that he knew he was gonna get, but not the one he was hoping for. The, his journey is over, now he's just sort of gotta get out of there. It's rough. Yeah, he really doesn't have a lot of options at this point. You know, he's brought back in at gunpoint. They burn the tape in front of him, and then they murder Max. And it's like, we're going to murder you next, you know? (laughs) Like, what did you expect? And Cage sort of pulls out the only trick, the only card he has left up his sleeve, and he's just like... They paid a million dollars. Like, I can't believe you would do this. And Dino Velvet is just like, wait, a million dollars? Like, we didn't get a million dollars to do this. And the lawyer is like, I got a guy. Small time, motherfucker. Who would have known? Why are you all still small time with a million dollars to spread around? Million? Yeah. That's what Christian gave Longdale. And that's what he gave you, right? A million in cash? Stupid. Fucking trash!
That was a great reveal, too. I guess you could call that a twist, that the lawyer sort of screwed the pornographers out of the money. <laughs> you know, like, okay, uh, uh, but it works, and it gets the bad guys to turn on each other, and the lawyer gets an arrow right through the chest, but he also shoots Mr. Velvet in the, in the neck. Wrong. Something's wrong. Oh, God, not like this. I'm supposed to have something more cinematic. Kill the machine. Kill them all. So, like, this whole movie is about death, right? Like, it revolves around death, but nobody in this movie has died up to this point. Then they slit Max California's throat. The lawyer tries to get away. He sort of has a gun. He sort of has the drop on everybody. He gets the arrow out of the chest, shoots Dino in the throat, and so really, like, in maybe a minute, like, three major characters just bit the bullet. The only people who are still there are Cage, the Machine, and James Gandolfini. Cage somehow, like, he gets a gun. How does he get a gun? Well, they took his gun, but he somehow slipped, like, a piece of metal up his sleeve so that... In the ensuing chaos, Machine, like, goes to grab him, and he stabs him in the stomach with, like, this little metal barb or something like that. Which is really important later in the movie in terms of finding out who Machine is. And then he just runs away. (laughs) Like, he runs away from Gandalfini. I guess he beats Gandalfini a little bit, but he pretty much runs away just to get some distance, I I guess. And he gets in the car, and he drives away, and he calls his wife, and he's just like go to the place you spent the 4th of July like can't tell you any more than this but you're in trouble just get out of here and then he calls Mrs. Christian the woman who commissioned him to go find out and figure out what happened to this girl the actress kind of plays it strange that he's delivering this message he's like hey like I just want to let you know the girl is dead your husband was into some dark stuff he had her killed and she just sort of like looks stunned and like her face like she almost like has no expression on her face and I was wondering if, like, she was in on it, too. But a little bit later on, you find out that she wasn't in on it and that this is actually, like, too much like this man that she had loved and been married to all these years was actually this horrible monster, and so she kills herself. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of when he's talking to the mother, and, you know, he's like, would you rather know or do you want to just keep on hoping? And I, had, yeah. I have a feeling, you know, the widow was in denial. Yeah, you know, everything looked like this was a real film and the girl's dying and she's going through all of this investigation but deep down she never would have imagined that it was real and 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 now it's confirmed you know she was holding out hope that the world was good and she just got confirmation that devils are running around on earth committing crimes that are you know more horrible than you can possibly imagine i I wrote down at this point this movie is dark 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 (laughs) (laughs) you know you get like this 85 year old woman taking her own life you know she probably would just had a heart attack in a day or two once like the grief really sunk in but she does the honorable thing before she kills herself that she gives cage all the money that she promised him he has all the money basically his job is done like he can take Catherine keener he can take cinderella they can go off to some place get away from gandolfini get away from the machine sort of start a new life be safe and she's like all right like let's let's do that and he's like no there's no one else to do this i need to get closure like marianne deserves vengeance and it's just like all right like i get that there's a movie but like Come on, dude, like, you're, you're already so invested, like, you don't have to finish this job. Again, it comes back to Cinderella, right? Like, if his daughter was kidnapped and killed, wouldn't he want somebody to avenge her? So I guess it's sort of, whenever he sees his daughter, it's like, I gotta do things because I wouldn't want this to happen to her. Yeah, and I get the sense he needs to finish what he started. He also may, you know, not want to live his life looking over his shoulder every day for Machine or Gandolfini to show up. Even though we sort of find out that they're kind of just as freaked out as he is and not going to be looking for him. I don't know, like, he is the only one that can do anything, so... Yeah, morally, he feels obligated to do this. You know, he knows what he can do. He knows what he should do. So now it's just a matter of doing it. And the first thing he goes and does is he finds Gandolfini, sneaks up on him, and just, like, beats him up. Like, just beats him to a pulp. He ties him up, and he doesn't kill him. He's basically just like, I'm going to go find the machine. Like, this is all going to be over. Like, it's almost kind of like Snake Eyes, almost, right? That it's, he's almost playing the same character. Like, he has this code, and he's willing to go so far, but he's not quite willing to kill. Yeah, at this point, he feels like, 
full-on Batman to me, right? Like, as as much as he's going to be where he's like, I want the machine, I want the machine, you know? Like, where's Joker, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. And he's like, I'll never get tired of hurting you, you know? Like, all this stuff where he's just like this brutal vigilante now. I mean, maybe because it's the end of the film, we have to get there fast. Like, there is a bit of a jump for his character. Like, suddenly, he's willing to just be super violent and torturous. And, yeah, he makes Gandolfini take him to where they film the actual snuff film and that's where he like ties him up just like basically live in the filth that you've created he calls mary's mom and breaks the news to her and we don't really know what happened to her but it's sort of she now has closure i mean again it's not the story it's not the ending she was hoping for but i guess it's the ending that she sort of should have expected he can't really bring himself to murder gandalfini you know he's got him all tied up he's talking real tough and gandalfini's like you can't do it you're never gonna do it like you just you're not that kind of person and then he goes and calls the mother and kind of like you know confesses like this is everything that happened she's dead it's true he's like please allow me to you know bring vengeance upon these people (laughs) i can do it like let me hurt them you know and i was like wow this is an amazing moment of cage right here you know him on the phone with the mother when i asked you if you'd want to know the truth no matter what what some men they took her and they killed her and they buried her no, 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 no. Sorry. No, 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 no. Sorry. No, no. I want to punish them for what they did. What are you saying? I can hurt them. Give me your permission to hurt them. Please. Tell me how much she meant to you. Just tell me that you loved her. Please tell me that you loved her. I love her. I love her so much. So he, he sort of has Gandolfini kind of taken care of, right? Um, oh, dude, for the fourth time, beats a man to death. He knocks him unconscious and then takes all the smut, all those magazines and those pictures, and puts it all around him and then douses him in gasoline and lights him on fire. Yeah. It's a lot of Cage Club imagery all coming to one, deep in the bowels of hell, burning this man to death. Yeah, he is baptized in these flames right now you know like he's in this hell and whether he makes it out of this situation or not he may never well he's never going to be the same person let's just be honest right like he (laughs) is officially crossed the line by burning this man to death in the name of vengeance great cause and everything but you know still very illegal gandolfini is like saying like you're not going to shoot me that gun's registered to you and he doesn't shoot him he just takes the butt of the gun and just beats him to death with the gun he did kill him with the gun just not you know (laughs) how gandolfini thought he was going to (laughs) and then he does like a smart thing that like the only loose end that he has left is machine and so he goes to the area where he met up with Dino Velvet somewhere in New York City, and he starts calling all these hospitals, he's pretending he's a cop, and he finally finds out that it's just this guy, this guy George Higgins, who lives with his mom. The fact that he's just, like, a normal guy is, like, the most evil thing of all. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, he's just, like, this loser. He's just this guy, that, you know, this 50-year-old guy who still lives with his mom, just like this really sort of infantilized man unable to do anything in terms of real the real world, yet he's also, like you were saying, scarier than Jason, the physical embodiment of evil in this movie. Yeah, I mean, talk about Jason Voorhees, like, is there a stronger case of, like, man-child, you know, murderer on film? I love the way this is shot. This is shot like a slasher horror film, too, you know? Like you say, there's nothing out of the ordinary about Machine when it comes down to it like he's just like he looks and is like he's just a normal person lives in a normal house but the way it's sort of shot with the music and the record skipping and the stalking through the home it's very scary and very tense and you know i have to give it to schumacher like man why did you have to make batman and robin (laughs) why did you have to do that he could have done you know batman begins it would have been insane but i'm loving this stuff and when machine does show up you know he's got the mask on it's pouring rain he throws cage out of a window into a graveyard like this is great stuff like this is horror film imagery and they have like an all-out 
brawl in the graveyard. And it sort of brings back to Red Rock West, right? Like, they had that big fight in the graveyard at the end of that movie, too. And he knocks Machine on the ground. He's like, take off your mask. Basically, you know, doing the Batman thing again. Like, <laughs> just barking commands at him. He takes his mask off, and he's just like a guy with glasses. Like, he's just like this, I think your word of the podcast last couple episodes is like this nebbish guy, right? Like, he's just like this schlubby guy. Just like a nothing. Like, you walk by him on the street, and you just don't give him second thought. Cage asks him, like, why? What drove you to do this? And the guy basically says, like, I had no reason. I just wanted to do it. And, like, that's the scariest thing of all. I don't have any answers to give. Nothing I can say is going to make you sleep easier at night. I wasn't beaten. I wasn't molested. Mommy didn't abuse me. Daddy never raped me. I'm only what I am. And that's all there is to it! Yeah, I was watching this movie trying to wonder, like I often do, about what was happening socially, like in the public conscious at the time, to sort of where did this film come from, the ideas and things like that. And and this guy, I mean, I might be a little off base, but he gave me like this Jeffrey Dahmer type of vibe where it was just like, I just did it because I wanted to do it. And, you know, I'm just this sort of normal looking guy with social problems. It's just like, it would have been better if they took off his mask and he was deformed or if he took off his mask and, you know, he was a literal monster, right? Like the fact that he's a normal guy is like the worst thing Cage could have seen, you know, he just does not want to know that normal people are capable of this. And yet he finds out he's capable of way more than he thought. Yeah, like, he's just a normal guy, too, and, like, it's sort of the the extremes that a normal guy can go to. Whether you're doing it for, like, a good cause or a bad cause, like, people are capable of really awful, awful things. And even for Cage's character, a lot of times he doesn't even realize until it's too late, right? Like, how far over the edge he's gone, or, you know, how far he'll need to go. Uh, it's not sort of till he gets to California that he's resigned to murder, and then he, you know for sure that he's showing up at Machine's house to kill him, and it's just that much more sad, you know? It's just sad because this guy is just far gone. He sort of, like, ties up the rest of the loose ends. He goes, He gets patched up at the hospital... He writes Marianne's mother, explains who he really was, writes her, said, like, hey, like, the guys are dead. There's, like, I know that your da- you wish your daughter was here, but, like, you can finally, like, you sort of have closure. And she writes him back, which I liked, because <laughs> he basically, you know, after he kills the machine and gets all patched up, he goes home. Catherine Keener is there with the baby. She said she may not be there, but she, at least, you know, he didn't lose his family over all of this, this entire... And at least they movie. weren't killed. Yeah, and they weren't... They weren't killed and they didn't leave him you know at least they'll be around for him to try and heal i'm really glad they didn't end on the shot of him in his wife's lap crying because you know of everything he just went through they have an extra little sequence where he gets a letter from the mother in the mail thanking him in the last shot of the film he's finally able to smile again you know has that hope she's like i'm glad those guys are dead like like, even though you may be conflicted about what you did like you did a good thing anything else you want to talk about we've covered this pretty pretty well i think we went over everything um that i wanted to talk about i didn't love love this movie the last like 45 minutes are like intense and like really like the whole movie is sort of it's well done it it makes you feel icky but like it's almost a little too slow and like there's not enough happening and then they just ramp things up like the last 45 minutes in terms of like whether or not you should watch it i think it's almost like if you can sort of get through like you could almost watch like the first hour sort of like on fast forward like okay he's doing this he's doing this he's doing this stop when joaquin phoenix shows up but then these last 45 minutes like it's it's worth it to see this movie i think that's an interesting point because I find generally if there's a issue with films, like it's mostly in the second and third act where it kind of falls off the rails. And this movie gets better and better for me. I yeah. think you're right. Like it does start off slow, depressing. It's a depressing flick. You know, once he gets to New York, it's like a whole other movie, you know, <laughs> in a way. Or it's just like a much more aggressive film. I would say it's worth sitting through that first half to, to check out this second half. This is like a weird little bit of trivia. James Gandolfini's characters have been interestingly cast. In True Romance, he's murdered by Patricia Arquette. In this movie, he's murdered by Nicolas Cage. 
And in real life, Nicolas Cage married Patricia Arquette. <laughs> so maybe in their nuptials, they talked about how they both wanted to kill James Gandolfini on screen. Who knows? But that's... <laughs> I wonder if uh, he's reading this script, if he's like, you know, should I take this movie? I get to kill James Gandolfini. And she's like, oh, I got to do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Do the movie. We'll both have that. <laughs> Another really cool little thing is that Nicolas Cage's Oscar award is in the film. It's on Eddie's desk. It's on Gandolfini's desk when Cage breaks in to tap the phone. I don't know why it's there, but like it's cool that it's there. That's really weird, but okay. The movie, as we've talked about, is very, very dark. And the studio wanted the screenwriter, Andrew Kevin Walker, who I said wrote Seven. They wanted him to make it a little bit lighter in terms of like, hey, like, let's not have this like be completely <laughs> bleak from start to finish. So they brought Schumacher on and the, the screenwriter thought, you know, oh, like Joel Schumacher, he's not going to want me to make changes. But it's turned out that Schumacher actually backed the studio and made changes of his own. And so the screenwriter actually hates this movie and hasn't watched the movie and isn't happy with how it turned out. Well, that's interesting. I, I might have heard something about that recently where he has spoken out about that. This, to me, feels like Schumacher purging all of that Batman and Robin business out of his system. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. This is just him making sure he still got it. I don't I don't know if, if he had it before. I mean, Lost Boys is a cool film, but, like, it's more of, like, a horror comedy than, like, a gritty, you know, investigative detective film like this. But, yeah, this, this just to me felt like, in a lot of ways with Snake Eyes, how De Palma was sort of shaking off the high-budget action special effects of Mission Impossible that Schumacher was kind of trying to distance himself from the same type of big Hollywood blockbuster Batman and Robin thing. Pretty much as far away from Batman and Robin as a movie could possibly be. So I can see why Schumacher would want to do something like this. But apparently, he was not the first choice to direct this film. The first choice was David Fincher, who Andrew Kevin Walker worked on with Seven. This was almost a Fincher movie, so that could have been really cool, you know, Cage and Fincher together. Interesting. That would have been, hmm, that could have been even darker, right? <laughs> it would have been Fincher even darker. would have taken it to places I don't even want to imagine. <laughs> in terms of other people who played almost were in this movie, it's a two-time almost Cage connection. Mark Wahlberg was almost Max California. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say he was almost Nick Cage's character. No. So Mark Wahlberg was almost Pollux Troy in Face Off, and he was almost Max California here. So he was almost Cage's, like, buddy on-screen duo, but in neither of those films. Well, I'm really glad we get Joaquin Phoenix here. It's kind of a role I don't think he's really known for, you know, but... He just feels so natural. <laughs> I don't know if that's just because he's such a good actor or I think he's such a good actor. He's so convincing as this guy. I just had a lot of fun, you know, just watching. Sometimes I was straying from Cage to watch him. And I was like, boy, oh, get your eyes on the other side of <laughs> This is Cage Club. This isn't Phoenix Pals. <laughs> Phoenix fans, I guess. <laughs> Phoenix fans with the PH. Um, the last thing that I want to say is that the woman who plays Mary Ann Matthews, who's never actually in the movie, the only time we ever see her is in the picture and in the actual snuff film, the actress was Jenny Powell, and she was originally a stripper hired to act as a stand-in. And this is kind of sad, that Joel Schumacher gave her the part because she had a suitably haunted look about her. So basically, like, oh, you look dead behind the eyes. Come play a girl who gets killed in a movie. Yeah, you, you look like the kind of girl who gets uh, off the bus and someone, like, <laughs> takes advantage of her immediately. <laughs> you know, thanks. That's all I got for 8mm. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you. So that was 8mm. Uh, you can go to cageclub.me to read our reviews of the movie to check out all past reviews and past podcasts. You can find out how to follow us on Twitter. You can find out how to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. All sorts of entertainment all over at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Hi.